Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people and how to apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. Learn more about the program and our ministry when you visit walkintruth.com. Now here's part two of Pastor Michael's teaching in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, called A Clean Conscience. Here's what happens with a lot of our mistakes, and we've all made them, we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, is we don't sometimes know how to deal with them. What do we do with our sin? I remember a pastor said he was on a plane and he ran into a Muslim gentleman and they began a conversation and they were talking a little bit about, you know, what they believed and, you know, Christian pastor and a Muslim guy. And so um, the Christian pressed the Muslim guy on the sin issue and, and he started to talk about Jesus being our savior and all of that. And basically um, it came down to this. So the, the pastor asked the man, what are you going to do about your sin? And he basically responded, well, I hope Allah will forgive me on that day. And he said, can I ask you, where are you headed down? And the man was honest and he said, well, I'm on my way to sin. And he was going to meet a lady that was not his wife. And somehow he got seated next to a Christian pastor and the issue of sin came up. And he was honest. He said, I'm going to sin. I'm traveling. I bought a ticket to go and sin. And the pastor said, well, your honesty is refreshing, but can I ask you on that day when you stand before God, what are you going to do about your sin? And that's, this is where most people say, well, I just hope, right? This is, this is what we do. I just hope that God will forgive me. But you're on your way intentionally to go sin right now. I know, I know, but I hope, <laughs> right? And then somehow they come up with this, oftentimes uh, a self-produced system where they think maybe, you know, this will happen or I'll, I'll somehow get off the hook or whatever. But we all know. We all have a conscience and we have perception of right and wrong. We do things with knowledge. And the question is, what do we do? Is it possible to, to have a clean conscience? Is it possible for that part of my life to be cleansed? When David cried out to the Lord, that's what he was saying. He was saying, what, can these stains be washed? David knew that even in the sacrificial system, he should have died because he committed adultery and murder, which were punishable by death. So what did David have? He says in that Psalm, if you remember, if there was a sacrifice I could bring, I would bring it, but that's not what you want. And then he went on to say, then I'm going to present a contrite heart and I'm going to pray for mercy. And God did give mercy to David, but he did not lift consequences from David. And I'll just say this, whether you're, you know, you're David in, you know, in the Old Testament times or you're in the New Covenant, you are a forgiven person tonight if you're in Christ and you can have a clean conscience. But if you mess around, God may not remove consequences. Amen? So that's what's going on here with some of these ideas of conscience. Now, in verse 1, and we'll move quickly through these opening verses because the author intends us to do so. He's not going to spend a lot of time here, nor are we. I just want to show you in verse 1 of chapter 9, the word now connects us to the last verses of chapter 8. David brought those to us. Let's just read them together. He was celebrating the new covenant as compared to the old. And he said, Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws into their minds and will write them upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now that's the new covenant that supplants the old or the old is obsolete now. And God remembers his mercy and forgets our sins. Praise God. He remembers his mercy and he forgets our sins. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. The word now connects us to those closing verses in chapter 8. And the writer has said that in 8.13 of Hebrews, if you just take a look at it, this is an important concept to get down. Hebrews 8.13 says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first what? Obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete, and I want you to notice it seems like it's a, it's a done deal, and then he says whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And David pointed out rightly last Wednesday that Hebrews dates around 64 AD. In six years, the whole temple precincts and all that went with it were going to go down. Titus Vespasian's coming in with his Roman armies. And they level the temple to the ground. Not one stone is left upon another, which Jesus gave a prophecy that that would happen. We're going to study that when we get to Matthew 24 in our studies on Sunday mornings. So the old covenant was obsolete, but the Jewish audience, the Hebrews that received this letter, what was their great temptation? To go back to the temple, back to the sacrifices. And the temple was still standing, but in six years, it would be gone. As if to say, there would be nothing to go back to. So you need to know, and I think some of this language makes sense when you have that in the back of your mind, that that temple was about to go down in six years. So I think the author is saying this, look, what you are tempted to go back to is ready to disappear. Hebrews 8.13. The, the old covenant is obsolete. It's been supplanted by the new. And even the structure that represents the old covenant, as glorious as it may be, that is the temple which took the place of the tabernacle, is ready to disappear. And it did disappear. It's gone. And even today, if you go to Israel, it ain't there. What is there is two Muslim shrines sitting on what people think is the Temple Mount. Some people think it's just below in the old city of David. But wherever it may be, it's somewhere in that immediate geography. And if you see pictures of uh, Jerusalem today, what you will see is two Muslim shrines and it's the Dome of the Rock, which is the golden domed one. And then the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the holier of the two in the uh, Muslim religion. And that's the one with the black uh, roof. But there are two Muslim shrines sitting there. There is no temple. And from 70 AD, when that temple was destroyed by Titus Vespasian, it's never been rebuilt again. And I know in a lot of end time scenarios, people are excited about a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem and sacrifices coming back and all of that. But if that did happen, it would be meaningless in the sense of salvation because that system has been supplanted. It is now obsolete. So if for some reason a temple does go up in Jerusalem again and Jews start sacrificing again, animals and so forth, it would be meaningless in this sense. It would have nothing to do with people's salvation. 
because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and whatever you want to add to take away sin. Amen? So we might get excited because we think, well, maybe that'll trigger some last day's stuff and I won't argue with you there. But I'm just going to say this, that if it does go up again and sacrifices start taking place, it will be irrelevant to the status of one's soul. In fact, I would say it would be offensive to God when he sent his son to be the fulfillment of those things and then we go back to the shadows because that that has been supplanted and disappeared. So the first covenant had all of these regulations and it had an earthly sanctuary And, and the writer of Hebrews has gone to the tent, the original tabernacle structure, not the temple But remember that they're basically the same thing. The temple became the permanent structure. The tabernacle moved around with the children of Israel. Once they had the temple mount, which David secured, then the physical stone structure was built. Now, let me just remind you, if we can throw up a picture of the uh, tabernacle. And let's leave up just the uh, one of the inside, just for a second. Well, just stay there for a moment. Go back to the first one. So remember, just to remind you guys, when we studied Exodus, this is kind of what it looked like as they moved around the wilderness. And as you entered in what's closest to us, you entered in the gate, single gate, one way in, one way out. First thing you came to in the outer court is the bronze altar where sacrifices of animals took place. If you were a lay person, you can't go beyond that altar right there. That's where you offered your animal. The priest took it and offered it on the altar. You don't go any farther as a lay person a non-priest, that's as far as you can go. If you are a priest, the bronze laver was for your washing, not a layperson's washing, a priest washed in the bronze laver. And then you could enter into the holy place as a priest, because there were regular things that you would do, like daily stuff. And then the holy of holies is on the, the back side of the temple or the, I should say the tabernacle inner court. So go to the next one just for a second. So we'll leave this up for a moment. So when you go into the inner part of the tabernacle, these are the furnishings that the writer will highlight. Now let's just read together so we can see how he hits on these. And he's going to tell us he's not going to spend time here. We've just gone through Exodus. So you guys should be experts on the tabernacle. For there was a tabernacle 9-2 of Hebrews or a tent prepared the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread or the showbread. This is called the holy place. Now, we know that each of these elements or furnishings pointed to Christ. The table of showbread, he's the bread of life. The menorah, he's the light of the world, etc. The altar of incense pictures the prayers of the saints, but also the intercessory prayers of Messiah. I won't go back through those. If you're interested, we did much in-depth teaching on the tabernacle and it's available on our normal uh, places. Behind the second veil, Hebrews 9.3, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Now that was the holiest place of all. In the Greek, it literally reads Holy of Holies. That might sound weird to us, but it does mean the holiest place of all having a golden altar of incense. If you have a New King James or King James, it says the golden censer. We'll come back to that. And the Ark of the Covenant. Now that's the famous piece of furniture behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And that's the Ark of the Covenant in the very back where you see the glory cloud coming down, the 
uh, angels' wings touching, and so forth. That's the top lid of the ark is the, called the mercy seat. And that description is actually a description of Jesus. He is our mercy seat. He's the fulfillment of that whole scene there. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Would you please consider supporting Walk in Truth being on this radio station and podcast for at least $5 a month? And visit walkintruth.com to give. As a thank you, we'll send you more content from Pastor Michael and the Walk in Truth team. And you will get this content through our new Walk in Truth app. You will have quick access to our daily episodes. You can watch videos of Pastor Michael's most recent Sunday sermons and access to our bonus podcast and video series, A Step Closer. This month's series is called An Invitation to Intimacy, a look at intimacy in marriage through the Song of Solomon. That's how I showed my anger. Mm-hmm. Not in words, but in you can't have me. Mm-hmm. And that took a toll in our relationship. Even for me, in a church that didn't shy away from it, it wasn't talked about a ton, but I remember getting married and my wife and I being like, this is weird. Like, so it's good now, I guess. You know? <laughs> there was infidelity. Just a lot of financial issues, you know, all those things that make the top list of, of yes. why a marriage is hard. The Lord's given us all things to enjoy, yeah. the, the scriptures say, and freedom is a big word yeah. as a Christian. Yeah. And unfortunately, what's happened in the church is that the church has not always sent a message that we're supposed to enjoy life and be free. Yeah. We've put a lot of unnecessary weights on people. All this and more is available to you on our new Walk in Truth app as a thank you for your financial gift. Please become a financial partner of at least $5 a month. Visit walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. We'd love to see who's listening, so please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just do a search for Walk in Truth Show. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. Glory cloud coming down, the uh, angels' wings touching, and so forth. That's the top lid of the ark is the, called the mercy seat. And that description is actually a description of Jesus. He is our mercy seat. He's the fulfillment of that whole scene there. Within the Ark of the Covenant in Israel's history, they placed... Three things. If you want to play trivia with your friends, ask them this question. What was in the ark according to the book of Hebrews? Three things. They put a golden jar holding the manna inside of it. They had Aaron's rod, which had budded, which represented the high priestly ministry, which flowered ultimately under Christ. And then they had the tables of the covenant or the Ten Commandments. So these are the things that were within the actual ark There are some verses that seem to have them out of the ark or maybe next to the ark. But at one point, these things were placed either inside of it or right next to it. And that's, you know, it it doesn't have a huge significance. But I will just say this. The the jar of manna was preserved to remember what God had done during the 40 years to provide the manna every day. Aaron's uh, staff that budded was a reminder of many things, including the flowering of the high priestly ministry. And of course, the Ten Commandments should be obvious to us, right? Uh, written by the finger of God. And then, of course, they had to be redone, etc., because they were thrown down one time. And above it, now he's moved us into the Holy of Holies. 
above it, the chest where all those things were, the, the lower part of the ark, was the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat or the lid. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. And some of us who are real serious Bible students might go, oh, bummer. Come on, I want to hear the author of Hebrews, you know, expound on these things. But he doesn't do it because that's not his purpose here. He knows that his Jewish audience knows these things really well. And I'm confident that this group knows them very well because we taught through Exodus and we we went through this multiple times. Notice how his focus is into the Holy of Holies and he comes right to the mercy seat. He's taken us into that place. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, all of the preparation that goes with this system, the first covenant, if you will, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle. They could go into the place where the table of showbread was and so forth, and they were performing the divine worship. A couple key words. They were continually performing. These are key words because it never ended. The people kept sinning, and they kept having to do their job day after day, night after night. But into the second uh, holy place, or you could say the Holy of Holies, as we've talked about, only the high priest enters, and that once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. Let's park there just for a second. I mentioned to you that the in verse 4, the altar of incense, you may have noticed that the altar of incense is just outside the curtain into the Holy of Holies. So do you see its position? Menorah, table of showbread, altar of incense closest to the curtain before you hit the Holy of Holies. It seems like the author of Hebrews doesn't know where it belongs because he says it's inside the, the Holy of Holies. What's going on here? Well, in the King James and the New King James version of the Bible, they call it the golden censer. Now, here's what a censer was. A censer was, you would take like a bowl, you would put like charcoals in it, you would sprinkle incense on top of it, and you could carry it around. So you you could think of a modern illustration where someone's carrying around like burning incense. Let's just say they held it in their hand like this, and incense is puffing off something that they're holding. On the Day of Atonement, if you go back and study Leviticus 16, you'll see something interesting. The high priest on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, once a year, He took a golden censer, entered into the Holy of Holies with the golden censer, left it there while it puffed smoke above the mercy seat, and he went out and he did a second offering according to all that was prescribed on on the Day of Atonement. And it may well be that the author of Hebrews is saying that the golden altar here, which is translated that way, I think, in every other modern version except for King James, New King James, the altar can be translated censer. It's only used once in the New Testament. I don't want to make more of this than it is, but you may have been curious about this. It may well be that the author is talking about what happened on the Day of Atonement with the censer and not the altar of incense outside the curtain. Everybody with me? But then scholars say this. But if that's true, why didn't he mention the altar of incense? Because he seems to skip over it. He mentions the the menorah and the showbread, but not the altar if he's talking about the censer. Everybody with me? So when you go back and study Leviticus 16, just to paraphrase, here's what's happening. If if it's correct that it's a censer, the high priest did take that into the Holy of Holies 
on the Day of Atonement, because remember, he can only go in there once a year. I want you just to imagine that. Just let that sit before you. Imagine that you could only come to church once a year. And some of you are saying, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> we met those people on Easter Sunday, didn't we? That, that's their groove. That's what they do. All right, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. But imagine you could only have communion once a year or pray once a year or open your Bible once a year or sense the presence of God once a year. That would be terrible. You know, right now, we often say when we pray, we, we can enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus anytime, 24-7, right into the holy place I go and I have the ear of my Father. I can be as near as I want to be. I draw near to him. He, draw near, he draws near to me. I don't have any barriers in my way. But in that day, one man, not multiple people, not a whole team of priests, one man, once a year. So think about how that limits not only the amount of time that it can be done, but the individual who can actually experience it. It's only one man. And he gets to do it as long as he lives until he dies. And then another guy gets to do it, but it's only one man, only one day a year. I want you to think of how significant that is if you're a Jewish listener and you realize that something radical has happened in this new covenant. When Jesus dies on the cross, one significant moment around the events of the crucifixion is the tearing of the veil in the temple from top to bottom. What does that signify? From God to man, the way is now open. There's no more barriers. There's no more curtains in the way. You know, curtains can send a significant message, uh, can't they? In a hospital, hopefully in your shower, <laughs> right? You have a curtain up and what does it do? It, it's a barrier it sends a message. There's something blocking the way. Well, if you were a priest and you were moving around and let's say you kept the menorah lit because it was supposed to be kept lit day and night, or you changed out the showbread and it got changed once a week, or you did something at the altar of incense, you might want to peer into <laughs> the Holy of Holies, but then you might not want to because you know what God said? If you do things according, not according to my ways, you did. You don't look upon me. You don't, you don't mess around with this Holy of Holies. And now imagine the radical shift that has taken place. You don't, we don't need that structure anymore. I know that structure was significant. I know you built your whole life around it. I know you came three times a year, all well-bodied males who could travel and all of that. And you came to this shrine. And as significant as it was, the veil's been torn. The way is open. For every one of us, you don't have to come from the line of Levi. You don't have to be in the right family lineage. You don't have to come with all the sacrifices being done the right way, with certain garments, a certain crown, a certain way. Make sure you've guarded your steps. You've all heard the stories about how they tie the rope to the foot of the high priest. Those are not in the Bible, but we've, we've got a few of them from history. Just in case he died, they want to try to pull him out because nobody else want to go in there, right? Can you imagine the confidence you must feel? Yeah, tie, tie it real tight, you know, just in case something goes haywire in there, <laughs> right? I mean, this is what they had to deal with it. And, and while it was holy and it was instructed by God, it still was very, very much sending a message. 
Don't tread here and don't come in the wrong way and don't come in if you're the wrong dude and don't come in at the wrong time or you're dead. And now, in the new covenant, what's happened? The way is open. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, we all come through Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies. Amen? You've been listening to A Clean Conscience, Part 2 on Walk in Truth. That was Pastor Michael's teaching in Hebrews 9, 1 through 15. If you missed any part of today's program, Walk in Truth is on Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and more podcast apps. Listen for free to Pastor Michael's teachings in more books of the Bible. Now, we have pastors on staff that would love to speak with you if you need prayer or counsel, or perhaps you have questions about Jesus and the Christian faith. Call Walk in Truth Tuesdays through Fridays during daytime hours at 844-48-TRUTH. That's 844-48-TRUTH. 844-48-TRUTH. And just a reminder that Walk in Truth is a listener-supported ministry. Please consider becoming a Walk in Truth partner. Your contribution helps us broadcast on this station and provide the podcast to reach more people like you with the hope of Jesus. And now we offer the Walk in Truth app as a thank you for your donation. Please consider becoming a Walk in Truth partner for at least $5 a month. Visit walkintruth.com and click donate. That's walkintruth.com. And join us tomorrow for part three of Pastor Michael's teaching in Hebrews 9, 1 through 15, called A Clean Conscience. I'm Mike Massaro. On behalf of Pastor Michael Lance and Living Truth Christian Fellowship, thanks for listening to Walk in Truth equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people.